You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC on ESPN 42 or UFC Fight Night Orlando Thompson versus Holland. This fight takes place this upcoming Saturday night in Orlando, Florida, with a main event in the UFC's welterweight division between former title challenger and I wouldn't say top contender at this point, but always been towards the top of the division and Steven Wonderboy Thompson going up against a man who's found a new home in the 170-pound weight class after having a little bit of success at 185, but not the best success in Kevin Trailblazer Holland. Wonderboy is currently ranked sixth in the UFC's welterweight division. Then in the co-main event of the evening, another battle at 170 pounds between former interim title challenger at 170 pounds and former lightweight title challenger in Rafael Dos Anjos going up against brawler and always exciting fighter coming off of a victory over ruthless Robbie Lawler, which both men share victory over that man in Brian Bam Bam Barbarina. So without any further ado, let's get this started in step into the ring. All right, all right, all right, everybody. Get ready for the predictions. UFC Fight Night this upcoming Saturday, December 3rd from the Amway Center in Orlando, Florida. Holland versus Thompson, I'm going to say it right now, is a fantastic main event, and it's a very stylistically favorable matchup for both guys. Like, I don't really necessarily see too much grappling taking place, and we've seen in both men's careers that the takedowns, the takedown defense and when somebody's able to take them down and really control them from the top position or set up submissions in either man's case, they seem to have a lot of trouble and they struggle. But when they go up against strikers who let them fight at range and dictate the fight on the feet, both men have success, which is what makes this main event so interesting. The odds are currently a minus 170 favor for Holland to a plus 145 dog for Steven Thompson. And I like those odds. I think it should definitely be a little bit over a pick em with Holland favored, but honestly... Wonderboy in a striking matchup is always a live dog, no matter what. Whether he's a favorite, whether he's a dog, he's always live. Because the only real trouble that Wonderboy has is against guys who can grapple and use their wrestling and close that distance off. Holland can use his grappling. His takedown defense has gotten better. Um, if anybody does use their grappling in this main event, I would say it's probably going to be Trailblazer Kevin Holland or Kevin Trailblazer Holland. I should say it correctly, right? Um, I don't necessarily see Wonderboy working some takedowns because even if he does to try to throw Holland off, Holland can lock up his neck and look for his submission. So I would venture to say that if wrestling is going to happen, it's going to happen on the side of Kevin Holland. But a lot of good fights on the card. Barbarina versus Dos Anjos is a fantastic fight for the co-main event. A little bit questionable why they made the fight because I feel like Dos Anjos should have gotten a little bit higher caliber of an opponent, especially at 170. But we know he had some success at 155 before losing that fight to uh, Rafael Fazeev. He had a great performance, a dominating performance against Hanato Moicano. And we saw what Moicano was just able to do to Brad Riddell. You've got Mateus Nicolau versus Matt Schnell, a battle between top seven ring contenders in the flyweight division. Sergey Pavlovich versus Tai Tuivasa. Jack Hermanson versus Roman Delidze. Eric Anders versus Kyle Dawkins. On the prelims, you've got Tracy Cortez and Amanda Hivas. Philip Rowe versus Nico Price. I mean, this is a, an amazing free card. From top to bottom, it's extremely, extremely stacked. And even though people might not look at the full card and maybe doesn't, they don't know a ton of people on that card, it's definitely a stacked card, especially for a free fight night. So we're going to get into it. I know there hasn't been a podcast since the predictions for UFC 281. I did do predictions for the UFC fight night, Luis versus Spivak, but that was on my YouTube channel, which is the same name as the podcast in the Touch Em Up podcast, you know, 
it's been more activity on the YouTube side because my numbers have been going up than the podcast side. But we will be looking to get these UFC Fight Night breakdowns, more interviews. I just did a video interview with Mike Beastboy Davis. He fights in the UFC's lightweight division. Um, really, really solid competitor. It was a really good conversation. The first in uh, video interview we've done on the podcast. So if you haven't checked it out, go to the YouTube or go to the YouTube. Go to youtube.com slash touch em up podcast. You can find it. Like I said, YouTube channel, same name as the pod. And you can find the first video interview. I'm looking to get some more done. I'm trying to set some stuff up for the next couple weeks. But before we get to that, we got to do Thompson versus Holland predictions. So that's what we're going to get started right about now. All right, and we're going to kick it off with the prelim headliner in the UFC's welterweight division in an exciting fight between Nico, the hybrid price, and the fresh prince, Philip Rowe. Phil Rowe versus Nico Price is a great fight. I could have seen it opening up the main card, to be honest, but it's going to be a back-and-forth fight. Both guys are going to come forward. They're going to look to get the finish. You know, either guy, Nico Price, he's live. He's always live for a finish. He's always live for an exciting fight. He's one of the few guys in the UFC that has knockouts off of his back, off the bottom with up kicks. And um, I believe he's actually gotten two finishes from the bottom, just in really awkward positions. One in like when the guy had him in a guard position up against the cage, he was able to land hammer fists and knock out his opponent. He got an up kick knockout against James Vick. I mean, Nico Price is always going to be exciting and he always brings the fight. As he always, always had like the best, you know, success inside the UFC, I guess you could say. No, I mean, he's got his wins. He's got his losses, but he's fought some really solid competition. He's 15 and five overall as a pro mixed martial artist. Uh, 13 out of those 15 wins come by way of finish. He's got three submissions and 10 KOTKOs to his name. Out of his five losses, three losses come by way of knockout, one by submission and one by decision. So it's a Nico Price is a killer be killed. I mean, that's the guy you're getting with a Nico Price. It's going to be an exciting fight, whether it's him finishing off his opponent, maybe locking up a submission, maybe knocking him out with some awkward shots from the bottom, from the top position. He's got power. He's a big, strong welterweight, but he does throw himself in harm's way, and he can be knocked out. Like it, it's, no, it's no doubt about it, and it's no secret that Nico Price is killer be killed. When you look at Philip Rowe, the fresh prince, he hasn't had too much experience inside the UFC. He's 9-3 and three as a pro mixed martial artist. Uh, all of his nine victories come by way of finish. He's got five wins by KO, TKO, four by submission. Out of his three losses, two come by way of decision and one by KO. Um, but all finishes in Phil Ro Philip Rowe's career as well. So like I said, both guys are going to come forward. They're going to look to get the finish. They're going to look to put their opponent away. Phil Rose coming off a TKO victory in the second round over Jason Witt, Witt back in February of 2022. Prior to that, he had a TKO in the second round over Orion Kose, or Orion Kose, which was actually after a very difficult first round for him where he got out-wrestled, out-grappled, and controlled, but he was able to come back and land some big shots on the feet. And once he got his striking off, once he got his punches from a range, the jab, the right hand, the left hook, once he was able to start landing his combinations and putting it together, it was a wrap for Orion Kose. And the same goes for Jason Witt. Witt had some good success early on, but once Roe got into his groove, he was able to put those combinations together. He was able to use his reach, his length, to land those long straight punches, the jabs, the right hands, the combinations on the feet. And I think it's going to be similar against Nico Price. Like he might have some trouble in the grappling against Price because we've seen Price resort to his wrestling and his grappling in some of his fights. 
But more than likely, I think Nico Price is going to be live to stand there and slug it out with Phil Rowe. His defense is not the best. He likes to rely on a lot of head movement, pulling away from shots, seeing the shots coming, pulling away, slipping, rolling. And against a guy like Nico Price, who has some awkward punches and awkward angles with his kicks and his combinations, like he's not the cleanest striker as Nico Price, but he's awkward. And when you're awkward and you rely on a lot of head movement, you can get yourself caught by punches that are coming from awkward angles. And we've seen it happen all the time. I mean, Anderson Silva against Chris Weidman. Now, am I cons- you know, comparing Philip Rowe to Anderson Silva? No, absolutely not. But, you know, the, the mechanics and the technical ability, like not technical ability, but the mechanics and the head movement getting caught by shots, it plays the same type of story. It tells the same type of story. And, you know, he lost the decision to Gabe Green, But prior to that, he got a TKO on the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series. He had a finish over Matt Matt McKeon. I'm sorry, I can't say that name. I think it's Matt McKean. Uh, But after the Contender Series, he lost at UFC 258 to Gabe Green via decision, but then came back and got two TKOs in the second round after he had a pretty rough first round. I think if... Nico's going to be live in any round. It's going to be the first round. Like Nico Price has fought some of the best of the best. If we look at Nico, the hybrid price, I mean, he's been in there with guys like Vicente Luque. Got finished, but landed some big shots, put it together. Um, He just got a decision victory over Alex Oliveira in October of 2021. So we haven't seen Nico Price for over a year inside the octagon. He lost the decision to Michelle Pereira. He had a no contest against Donald Cerrone. It was overturned. Um, Back and forth fight, but, you know, it doesn't look the best to go to a no contest with Donald Cerrone at this point in his career. He had that TKO loss to Vicente Luque in the third round, but in that fight, he looked good. He was putting his combos together. He hurt, um, he hurt, what's it called, Vicente Luque at one point. I think he caught him with an awkward front kick up the middle. He's got good kicks, and we could see him use, a, use these against Phil Rowe, but throwing kicks when you're not setting him up correctly against a guy who's got the length, who's got the reach, and has power in his hands and can put the combinations together, I think it's going to be a little bit of a problem for Nico Price. That up kick knockout over James Vick, he lost via TKO to Jeff Neal. But, I mean, losses to Jeff Neal, Vicente Luque, Abdul Razak El-Hassan, I mean, two losses to Luke, actually, one by submission and one by TKO. But he's got wins over Alan Joban, Randy Brown via KO. That's where he caught him up against the cage and landed those hammer fists when Brown was in that awkward position. Um, TKO over Tim Means, that was a vicious knockout by Nico Price. That up kick KO against James Vick and then that win over Alex Cowboy Oliveira via decision. I would say his best win in his career is probably going to be that decision victory over Alex Oliveira. Then after that, probably the TKO or the KO over Randy Brown and then the upkick over James Vick. I mean, he doesn't have the best wins, but he's fought some of the best. I mean, Luke is one of the best guys at 170. Jeff Neal, Luke and Neal actually just fought in their last fight. Neal came up big with a TKO over Luke, the only guy to ever finish Vicente Luque in the UFC. But when it comes to breaking down the fight, I think the technical ability has to go to the side of Philip Rowe. I mean, he's got the really good straight technical punches. He can mix his combinations up together. He can throw a one-two step into southpaw, land an elbow over the top, frame off, overhand, left hook, elbow, shots to the body, knees inside the clinch. He can mix it up. And when Rose on point, you know, he's fresh. His nickname's the Fresh Prince. He can mix it up to- together pretty well. He can throw those combinations. He can mix it up. Striking, clinch game. The the grappling is his downfall, and Nico Price could rely on it. We saw him use some more grappling in his recent win in his last fight. 
against Alex Cowboy Oliveira. He used more grappling than in some of his other fights, but I kind of think Nico's going to want to keep it on the feet. If he wants to play it smart, I think he could, he could grapple, and he should grapple against Philip Rowe. But I honestly think that the, the length and reach of a Philip Rowe is going to give Nico Price a little bit of trouble. We'll look at the stats really quick before I make the official pick, but... Philip Rowe is going to have a four and a half inch reach advantage, 76 inch reach for Nico Price to an 80.5 inch reach for Philip Rowe, uh, 42 and a half inch leg reach for Nico to a 44 inch leg reach for Rowe. I think the kicks are going to be more effective on the side of Nico Price, but I think the knees inside the clinch, the long straight punches, the boxing is all going to be on the side of Philip, the Fresh Prince Rowe or the Fresh Prince Philip Rowe, however you want to say it. More experience against high-level competition is definitely going to go to Nico Price. Philip Rowe trains out of Fusion XL with guys like Mike Beast Boy Davis, who we just interviewed. Beast Boy actually talked about this fight, this upcoming fight with Philip Rowe on his on the podcast. If you haven't checked it out again, go back and check out the interview with Mike Beast Boy Davis on the YouTube channel. First video interview that we've done on the show. But I'm I'm gonna have to go with Philip Rowe here. I've what I've seen from him, even though he hasn't been in the UFC that long. I mean, nine and three, but all nine victories coming by way of finish. Um, I like Philip Rowe's boxing. I like his length and reach. I'm worried about him in the first five minutes, but once it gets into that second round, once we hit that six, seven minute mark, once we go past that seven minute mark, that's where I think Philip Rowe is really gonna put it together. And I think he starts catching Nico Price on the chin, who has never been the best defensively. You know, Philip Rowe isn't the best defensively either, but he's better technically in the striking. So I think he might be able to see some of those looping shots coming from a Nico Price a little bit better. And if he's able to get that range and get that distance and really fight at his range using that uh, four and a half inch reach advantage, I think we're going to see Philip Rowe piece up Nico Price from a distance and eventually get a stoppage victory. Um, I could see Nico catching him with some wild shit and hurting him. You know, he is awkward. He can knock you out from the bottom. He can catch you in submissions, catch you with shots that you don't see coming. He's a wild man. They call him the hybrid. He kind of has a hybrid fight style. He mixes it all up together. It might not be the cleanest. It might not be the prettiest, but he can land shots that you just don't see coming. And that could be a problem for Philip Rowe. But when you look at the odds, Philip Rowe is currently sitting as an underdog in this fight. And I understand why, because of the competition level, but he's at plus 115. He was at plus 120, plus 125 earlier in the week to a minus 120, minus 135 favorite for price. I like the underdog in Philip Rowe to get the job done here. Um, if you don't want to ride with the underdog and you're worried that price can get it done, then I think the best betting angle from this fight would be under two and a half rounds or fight doesn't go the distance. A lot of times they like to beef up that fight doesn't go the distance, especially when it's fights with two finishers, which makes sense. But I like the underdog shot on Philip Rowe here all day. I know some people might be a little worried to take the shot because Nico Price has the better competition levels, but I think the technical ability from Philip Rowe is going to shine through here. And I just really like Phil Rowe's chances to use that long boxing, use the reach, use the knees inside the clinch to really catch Nico Price at a distance where Price can't catch him. Use that reach, use that uh, striking advantage, and catch him with the cleaner shots and hurt him. We've seen the power on the side of both men, but I think the power in the boxing is more on the side of Rowe, and I have to side with Rowe for the pick here. So my pick is going to be the Fresh Prince, Phil Rowe, to defeat Nico the Hybrid Price via a second-round TKO. I think we're going to keep up that second-round finishing sequence for Phil Rowe here. He's going to catch Nico with a long, straight shot, land a knee inside the clinch. Nico's going to try to tie him up. He's going to land an elbow off the break, another one-two, a hook, and a uh, barrage of punches behind it, and he's going to get a TKO victory over Nico Price. So my pick, first pick of the night, is going to be Philip the Fresh Prince Rowe or the Fresh Prince Philip Rowe 
to defeat Nico the Hybrid Price via second round TKO. We're starting it off with the underdog, baby, and let's keep it rolling. All right, and now we are going to move to the main card with the main card opener in the UFC's middleweight division. You have a battle between Eric, your boy, Anders, who comes into the fight with a record of 14 victories, 7 defeats, and 1 no contest. Going up against Kyle the Darce Knight Dawkus, who comes back with a record of 11 victories, 3 defeats, and 1 no contest. This is a really good fight as well. Really solid matchmaking here. I think that a lot of people are going to immediately jump on the side of Dawkus, even though he just got finished in his last fight against Roman Delidze, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, I, a lot of people have big upside for Dawkus. He had a really good success in other organizations before the UFC. Former champion, I believe it was in, not LFA, maybe I'm wrong. I know he was a former champion in another organization. And Eric Anders, like he had some good success early in his career. He has decent power. He's got good shots, a former football background, I believe. And, you know, but he really just hasn't lived up to the hype. And I think a lot of people are going to start to fade your boy. And maybe your boy's going to show them that this is not the fight to fade him in. I mean, Dawkins is coming off that vicious knockout via knee to Roman Delidze. But when you break the fight down stylistically, we'll look at some of the stats prior to it. Uh, both men coming off a loss. Yeah, Eric Anders coming off that loss to Jung Young Park. And then Doc is coming off that loss to Roman Delidze. Height, uh, two-inch height advantage for Kyle Dawkins, 6'3 to 6'1 for Eric Anders. When you look at the reach, it's going to be a one-inch reach advantage for Dawkins at 76 inches to a 75-inch reach for Eric Anders. Leg reach, pretty identical, 43.5 for your boy to 43 inches for Dawkins. We look at the overall, let's see, my computer's acting up right now, so forgive me. We'll go with win percentages. 57% of the wins coming by way of KOTKO for Anders, 7% by submission, and 36% by decision. For Dawkins, 82% of his wins come by way of submission and 18 by decision. So the higher finishing rate is obviously going to be on the side of Dawkins, but the KOTKO rate is going to be on the side of Eric Anders. I think he does have more power. He's got big power in his shots. He's a very explosive guy, but he just can't get the volume going. A lot of the times he's standing, you know, sitting in a mirror, and he doesn't make the best decision when it comes to fight IQ. I think the bigger fight IQ and the better fighter fight IQ, the more intelligent approach is always going to be on the side of Dawkins. Even in the fight against Kevin Holland, where um, Dawkins actually submitted Kevin Holland with a rear naked choke, but before that there was a clash of heads with basically knocked out Kevin Holland, but... You know, I feel like if that fight was to be booked again where it was originally going to be rebooked and then it didn't happen due to an injury, I think, on the Dawkins side, um, I picked Dawkins to beat Kevin Holland in that fight. And although he did get the submission, like I believe I called, you know, it was that big clash of heads that basically knocked him out before it, so it was a no contest. So I could have been one of the only people to pick Dawkins against Kevin Holland, but again, clash of heads, so you can't really celebrate that because... Who knows if it would have happened if that unfortunate foul wouldn't have occurred. Average fight time for both men. You got 12 minutes and 16 seconds for Eric Anders and 9 minutes and 59 seconds for Dawkins. So more experience inside the octagon for Eric Anders, but a bigger finishing upside like, upside, like we said, especially when it comes to the submissions, which is the only way he gets his finishes in the Darce Knight Kyle Dawkins. You look at significant strikes. So uh, landed per minute, it's pretty close. 3.26 for Eric Anders to 3.05 for Dawkins. Significant strike percentages, more accuracy on the side of Dawkins, 54% to a 47% significant strike accuracy rate for Anders. 4.2 strikes absorbed per minute for Anders to 
2.56 for Dawkins. So Dawkins is better defensively. Anders is a little bit more there to be hit. His head movement isn't there too much, and he kind of just walks forward. And like I said, his fight IQ isn't the best, but he's got power, and he does make some good decisions in some of his fights, but the head movement's not really there. And um, yeah, so the strikes of war per minute is going to be more on the side of Dawkins because he takes less per minute. I just completely carried that on for too long, so my apologies there. 50% striking defense rate for Eric Anders to a 40% defense rate for Dawkins. I know it says that uh, Anders is better defensively due to the stats, but going off the fights and the stats we just talked about, I think that Dawkins is a little bit better technically when it comes to the offense and the defense on the feet. All right, here's the deal. You know, Eric Anders fought a guy who was a very, very solid world champion-esque grappler in Andre Muniz. And the minute he took him to the ground, he got dominated. Now, Muniz could maybe do that to Dawkins as well. Take him down, get in the mount, look for an armbar, take the back, fall off with an armbar, and catch him. You know, he couldn't submit Uriah Hall. I thought for sure he was going to get the submission there, and he wasn't able to do it. But... If Dawkins was to fight Andre Muniz, would he be able to submit him? I think that Dawkins would put up much bigger of a fight. I think that uh, Eric Anders is going to have a problem with the grappling, with the takedown attempts, especially with the inside and outside trips from inside the clinch, getting his back taken, flattened out, looking to attack the neck from Dawkins. I mean, they don't call him the Darce Knight for no reason, and most of his victories, especially when it comes to finishes, are going to be by submission. He only gets his finishes via submission like we already touched on. You know, we'll look at his overall record for Dawkins. 11 and 3 overall as a pro, 14 and 7 for Eric Anders. Nine victories out of his 11 wins come by way of submission. Two victories via decision. One loss by KOTKO, two losses by decision. I mean, he got knocked out by Delidze, but most of the time, if he loses, it's going to be via decision. And if he finishes you, he's going to take you down. Use those inside and outside trips from inside the clinch or shuck you forward, take your back, and look to lock up a choke. They, Like I said, the Darce Knight. You look at a lot of his finishes, he got a Darce choke against Jamie Pickett. Decision over Dustin Stolzfus. He got a Darce choke against Nolan Norwood. A Darce choke against Steven Regman. A Bravo choke or a Darce choke against jo Jonathan Webb. A rear naked choke against Dustin Long. A rear naked choke against Elijah Jaboli. He's got a Darce choke against Tyler Bayer, a Darce choke against Kyler Walker. He's always looking to attack the neck. That's what Dawkins is looking to do all the time, and that's what he's going to be looking to do against Eric Anders. Now, is Anders the bigger, stronger, more imposing guy? Yeah, absolutely. Is it going to be hard for Anders or for Dawkins to take down Eric Anders? Yeah, I believe it's going to be difficult. I don't think it's going to be a walk in the park, but we've seen him get taken down before. And a lot of the times when he gets taken down and the guy's able to establish top position with the Jung Young Park, with Andre Muniz, and with some other fights in the past as well for Anders, he doesn't have the best success and his defense is not there. And going up against a guy who's got nine victories out of 11 wins coming by way of submission, that's a big problem for Eric Anders. Anders has more power. There is potential that he could catch Kyle Dawkins. Dawkins did just get knocked out. Like it is, there is a potential there that the, the power of Eric Anders can cause a lot of trouble for Dawkins, but I don't necessarily see him having the fight IQ to get into the correct range where he's going to be able to unload those big shots. And we've already looked at the stats, and we see that Kyle Dawkins is better defensively when it comes to the striking as well, and better offensively and defensively when it comes to danger in terms of the grappling. The overall better fighter in this fight is going to be Kyle Dawkins, 100%. I think he's been overlooked in a lot of his fights. Like I said, I think I was one of the only guys who picked him to win against Kevin Holland. And although it was a clash of heads, was he going to get the submission if that clash of heads didn't happen? We'll never know, but, you know, it is what it is. 
out of his seven losses for Eric Anders, he's only been submitted one time, but he has problems with grapplers. And I know the only submission loss came to Andre Muniz, who is probably the best grappler currently in the middleweight division. But, you know, I think his grappling inefficiencies and his grappling, you know, issues are going to get exposed against Kyle Dawkins. I definitely believe so. I think Dawkins is the more technical striker on the feet. I think that the, the power is going to be on the side of Anders 100%. I mean, eight out of his 14 wins come by way of KOTKO, but he also goes to decision, you know, five out of his 14 wins. But overall, when I see this fight playing out, I think Dawkins is going to be more effective. He's going to be faster with the striking combinations on the feet. Good straight left, good right hook, good uppercuts. He can really put his combinations together when he's feeling it. And I think we're going to see that in this fight. Both Dawkins brothers have extremely good striking. Chris Dawkins has fallen off a little bit, but it's due to the competition level in the heavyweight division. Dawkins or Kyle Dawkins has good power, good straight left, good right hook. Can mix it up three, four, five punch combos. Uses punches to enter into takedowns. Even in the fight against Kevin Holland, that didn't last very long. He landed a straight left switch over into orthodox. Landed the overhand right and then used that to set up the body lock to go for a takedown. Kevin Holland showed good takedown defense. I don't think Anders is going to have the best success defending the takedowns. Even if he does stop the attempts, I think it's going to open up the back for Kyle Dawkins. And Dawkins is eventually going to take the back and get a submission. My pick in this fight is going to be Kyle Dawkins. He's a pretty big favorite. You look at the betting line for the fight. Kyle Dawkins is sitting at a minus 210 favorite. So over a 2-1 to one favorite over Anders, the plus 180 on the side of Anders. Even though he's over a 2-1 to one favorite, I like Kyle Dawkins all day. And I like Kyle Dawkins to win via submission. If we're looking at prop betting, we'll go back to the fight on DraftKings, and I can pull that up for you. For Kyle Dawkins to get the victory via submission, let's see, where is it at? Is it not on here? Come on, come on, come on. Here we go. Eric Anders, Kyle Dawkins. Oh, what is it? Dawkins. Dawkins to win by submission is sitting at plus 275. A $100 bet would net you $275 in profit. You'd win about $375 in total, not counting the 100 that you put in. I like the prop side of Dawkins to win by submission. I know, like I said, Anders has only been submitted once, but if somebody's going to do it, it's going to be Kyle Dawkins. He's going to be able to take the back. He's going to be able to attack the neck. He's going to catch Anders in a scramble, and he's going to be the by far better grappler. He might have good takedown defense. Anders is going to be stronger. He's going to have the strength advantage, but the grappling technique, the flow, flowing on the mat, the setting up of the takedown attempts, the striking combinations, that is all on the side of Kyle Dawkins. And I think the line isn't that crazy to have him sitting at a two- Two and a half to one favorite or two minus 210 minus 225 favorite. That's lined about right to me. If you want to attack on the money line, I like Dawkins as a parlay piece, but I like the prop betting side of Kyle Dawkins to win by submission at plus 275. If he's going to get it done, that's probably how it's going to be. If you're looking at the under two and a half rounds, that's a good side to look at as well. A plus 140 for under 2.5 rounds. If I'm going to bet on this fight, it's going to be either Dawkins money line. Under 2.5 rounds at plus 140, or Dawkins to win by submission at plus 275. Obviously, the most lucrative bet for the fight would be Dawkins to win by submission, but the safest bet, I think, is the under 2.5 at plus 140, followed by Dawkins via or filed, followed by Dawkins on the money line at minus 210, minus 220, and then followed by Dawkins to win by submission at plus 275, because I think if he does get it done, it's going to be by submission. But my official pick is going to be Kyle the Darce Knight Dawkins to lock up another victory via submission and improve to 12 and 3 via a second round rear naked choke submission. All right, up next is going to be a fight again. 
in the UFC's middleweight division. Man, it's the tail of the middleweights here with the number eight ranked Jack the Joker Hermanson going up against the, it says number eight ranked. I don't believe Roman Dolidze is ranked in the division, but going up against Roman the Caucasian Dolidze, who comes into this fight with a record of 11 victories and one loss, 23 victories and seven losses on the side of Jack Hermanson, but the competition level for sure is going to be on the side of Jack the Joker. Um, this is a really interesting matchup. I actually just did a video breaking down Jack or uh, Roman Dolidze and how he's a problem for the middleweight division. Now, do I think he's going to beat everybody? No, but we just talked about Kyle Dawkins, who got his face blown off with a knee from inside the clinch up against the cage in the first round against Roman Dolidze. Then Dolidze goes in against Phil Hawes, takes his leg in a knee bar after you know, scrambling using the Ashigarami game, basically rips his knee apart from extending it and like sideways in a really awkward position. And then, you know, lets him off, says like, check him. He's, he's injured. He comes back and fights. And then he falls off balance again. And Delidze cracks him with a four punch combo or a three punch combo and knocks him out cold. Delidze is not the best technically. Like I'm not going to sit here and lie. Roman Delidze is good at mixing up his strikes. He has good power. I think he has more power than Jack Hermanson. Hermanson's going to be fighting out of that southpaw position. You know, Delidze is going to be fighting out of orthodox. He's going to be mixing it up. But when he goes to southpaw, he likes to throw that left high kick, the left kick to the body. He will switch stances, but he has most of his success from the orthodox position. He's not the most effective when it comes to his striking, but his striking has gotten better. And it's led to two back-to-back -back finishes over solid, serious competition in Phil Hawes and Kyle Dawkins. You know, I think Delidze is a lot more live of a dog here than people are giving him credit for. I know Hermanson, like I said, he's got the better competition. I mean, you look at his most recent fights. He has that decision victory in his last fight against Chris Curtis. I picked Curtis to defeat Hermanson by TKO, and I had him on the money line. Jack Hermanson shut me down. The Joker proved me wrong. He lost to Sean Strickland via split decision, but, I mean, if you go back and watch the fight, there's no way that that decision should have been split. It was all on the side of Sean Strickland for the majority of the fight. He's got a unanimous decision over Edmund Shabazi, and he was able to outgrapple him, just batter him with ground and pound. Jack Hermanson has vicious, vicious ground and pound. We don't see much ground and pound from Delidze because he's more of a positional guy looking for submissions when it comes to the grappling, but I think he has power as well. But the one place you don't want to be is on the bottom against Jack Hermanson because he will rip you apart just like he did Shabazi. But I think we definitely know that Delidze is more competent on the mat. He's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion, a very solid standout grappler before he got into MMA. And, you know, I don't think he's going to be there for the vicious ground and pound. But if Hermanson does get in the top position with the grappling in the top, in the mount, in the half guard, he's going to try to rip apart the face of the Caucasian Roman Delidze. Prior to that, he lost a unanimous decision to Marvin Vittori. Vittori actually dropped him in that fight, but it was competitive, but not the most competitive he then caught Kelvin Gastelum with a heel hook at 1 minute and 18 seconds of the first round at UFC Fight Night 172. I submitted him right away. I think I picked Gastelum in that fight 100%. I'm, I'm pretty positive I had Gastelum just being able to outstrike him, hurt Hermanson, and finish him. He again proved me wrong. Before that, a TKO loss to Jared Cannonier in the second round. Caught him with that uppercut as he went to shoot a takedown, jumped on him, finished him off. 
He got a unanimous decision victory over Ronaldo Souza, but he almost submitted him in that fight with the Joker team where he gets the back side control, reaches around to the opposite side, shoots the knee across the belly or the shin across the belly, and then throws the foot over to the opposite hip to stop you from passing over the knee and getting into half guard or potentially inside control. The Joker team is the finishing move of Jack Hermanson. That guillotine is a problem for everybody including David Branch, who he submitted with a guillotine choke in the first round at 49 seconds before he got that win over Ronaldo Souza. Before that, a guillotine choke again. Joker teen over Gerald Mearshart, who was a very competent grappler in his own right. He had a TKO victory over Talis Latis in the third round at UFC 224. He lost to Tiago Santos via TKO, but Mahenta has a lot of power. We already know that. A TKO victory over Bradley Scott. A TKO victory over Alex Nicholson. Uh... Unanimous decision victory over Scott Ashker. Scott Askham. He's been submitted before. He got submitted via arm triangle to Cesar Ferreira. But most of the time, if there's a submission in the fight, it's going to come from the side of Jack Hermanson. But I think we're really underestimating Delidze's grappling ability. I don't necessarily think that Hermanson is going to have the most success in the grappling aspects against a guy like Delidze. Who can use the Ashigarama game? Who can flow very effectively? Who can control the positions? I think it's going to be back and forth. I think we're going to see a lot of scrambles from both guys on the mat. And I think the submission in Jiu-Jitsu advantage that Hermanson is used to having over all of his opponents is not really going to be there against Alidze. I think that your Hermanson showed that he's more comfortable on the feet in his last fight against Chris Curtis, where he was able to stay at a distance, pop him with the left jab, left hook, right low kick, you know, kick to across the legs, inside and outside, land the front kick to the body, land a front kick up top to the head, one, two, left hook, right low kick, hook, low kick, one, two, left hook, low kick, switch stance, straight left. Front kick up the middle, really good solid front kick and teep kick to the body and very good lateral movement. Always trying to keep that outside foot, always pivoting, turning off, you know, turning the angle, cutting the angle, stepping to the outside of the lead foot. You know, that's going to be a problem against a guy who doesn't, or that's going to be a problem for a guy in Delidze who isn't the most effective when it comes to volume on the feet. But the thing that he has that's an equalizer, which we really didn't know until his last two fights, is that power. And if he connects on the chin of Hermanson, whether it's a knee, whether it's a left hook, whether it's a straight right, whether it's a left high kick, I mean, he's got power in everything that he throws. I would say that at this point, Hermanson is the more technical striker. If he's able to keep him at a distance, poke and prod, pop him with the jab, pop him with the straight punches, pop him with the low kicks, pivot off, and constantly have Delidze chasing him, then we could get a very clear-cut decision from Hermanson. I don't necessarily think Hermanson has the ability to finish um, Delidze, but he could catch him in a submission. I mean, he almost caught Jacare, who's one of the best grapplers in mixed martial arts and in the jiu-jitsu community altogether. He almost caught Souza in that guillotine and had it very close, but he was able to get out. Um, I know why a lot of people are picking Jack Hermanson here. Like, don't get me wrong. I understand the reasons why. Um, I see how his striking has improved, especially in his last fight against Chris Curtis, where he again proved me wrong. But, I mean, I, I think Delidze is a live dog here. If anybody's a live dog on the card in terms of, like, you know, high-level matchups, Delidze is a very, very capable dog at plus 165. I actually have a bet on him going into this, but we'll get to the pick, even though I kind of just spoiled it, and that's my bad. But you'll look at the, the stats real quick. 11-1 for Delidze, 23-7 for Hermanson, which we already touched on. 6-1 for Hermanson and 6-2 for Delidze. Delidze is a very tall, muscular guy. He has a, a great frame for this middleweight division. Uh, when it comes to the reach, 77 and a half inch reach for Hermanson to a 76 inch reach for Delidze. You know, Hermanson is going to want to use all of that one and a half inch reach advantage and stay on the outside and pick apart Delidze, who again is not the most 
effective in terms of volume. He's not the most active striker, but what he doesn't have in volume, he makes up for in power. And that's something that Hermanson has. He did hurt Chris Curtis. He's knocked out people before, as we just touched on. But I would say the power advantage in this fight is definitely going to go to the side of Eric Nixick's student in Roman the Caucasian Delidze. Leg reach, uh, 46 and a half inch leg reach for Jack Hermanson to 41 inch leg reach for Delidze. I mean, a five and a half inch leg reach advantage. Like I said, he's going to want to keep it on the outside as Hermanson if it's a striking matchup. The grappling is going to be effective from both guys, but I honestly think that Roman Delidze is going to have better success in the grappling, and he's actually going to be able to outgrapple Hermanson, especially in terms of positioning more than submission attempts. In my opinion, you don't have to agree with me. I understand how good Hermanson and how talented he is when it comes to the grappling, but I think Delidze can out grapple him 100% in this matchup. But keeping it on the outside, keeping that outside foot, landing the shots up the middle. When he switches to southpaw, counter it with switching to orthodox and landing the right kick to the body. Make Delidze not want to switch to southpaw and throw those kicks. And then go back at the outside foot, fight on the outside, dance around the octagon. Is it going to be the most effective? No, it's not. But... You know, or is it going to be the most entertaining? No, but it's going to be more effective for Hermanson. And I think we're going to see him use that strategy against Delidze. We've seen Delidze get caught before. I mean, when he fought Trevin Giles, he really got exposed in terms of the striking, but he's gotten better. He sharpened it up. And we've seen that in his last two performances. When we look at the win percentages, you've got 26% of the wins coming away at KO, TKO for Hermanson, 14% by submission, and 60% by decision. You know, he's got a 40% finish rate and a 60% decision rate. On the side of Delidze, 55% of his wins coming by way of KOTKO, 27% by submission, and 18% by decision. That is going to be a 82% finish rate. So you've got a 40% finish rate on the side of Hermanson to an 80% finish rate for Delidze. I don't think this fight goes the distance, and I think Delidze comes up big as an underdog here. I really think the power in those positions, especially in the clinch, those knees up the middle for her uh, against Hermanson. You know, he's been TKO'd before, but he doesn't get knocked out very often. Hermanson does have a good chin, but we've seen him get dropped. He's been knocked out twice. We've seen him get dropped in fights where he hasn't been knocked out, but Jared Cannonier with the KO and Tiago Santos. Those are two of the strongest punchers. I don't think Delidze has that kind of power, but he has a lot of power. And I think he can catch Hermanson on the chin and can knock him out. And when it comes to a pick, I'm siding with Roman Delidze here. I know a lot of people might disagree with me. They might say that the competition level of Hermanson is a lot higher, which you would be right. Um, Delidze hasn't had the same experience, but his last two fights shows that this guy is just getting better and better. And I think we're going to see Hermanson fall off here. I know he got the win over Chris Curtis. I picked against him there. So maybe you want to fade my pick and maybe you want to go with Hermanson because sometimes I pick against him and I'm right. But sometimes I pick against them and I'm wrong. That's the fight game. That's the prediction game. But I'm going with the Lindsay. I think he has the power. I think he has the awkward punches to catch Hermanson, maybe shooting it on a takedown with an uppercut, catching him in a clinch with a knee. He's tall. He's long. He's rangy. He's got power and he's got the grappling to make it difficult for Hermanson to implement that style of game plan. The best game plan for Hermanson is to shoot those takedowns at the end of the rounds. And then for the majority of the round before the last, you know, minute, minute and a half. Use that outside game. Use those inside and outside low kicks. Keep them on the outside. Stay on the outside. Pivot off. Step to the outside. Angle, angle. Front kicks up the middle. Long straight punches. You know, a lot of front kicks, a lot of low kicks. Just attack them and poke and prod and touch them up. Same name as the podcast is the, the game plan that I think 
Hermanson has to employ in this fight is touch him up. But I think at one point, Delidze's going to land a bomb. And the fact that he doesn't have that grappling to fall back on as much in this fight as he would against others, I think Delidze's going to come up and get the finish. I think he actually TKOs Jack Hermanson. So my pick is Roman, the Caucasian Delidze, to improve to 12-1 and as a professional mixed martial artist and with a TKO victory over Jack Hermanson in the second round. Um, I could see a first-round finish as well, but I think Hermanson's durable. Um, you know what? Forget it. Actually, no. I'm going to go with a first-round. Another first-round finish in the UFC career of Roman Delidze over Jack Hermanson. I think he's going to find Hermanson getting caught up against the fence at one point. Maybe he's going to angle off incorrectly. Delidze's going to cut him off, and he's going to bomb away on him with a combination. He's going to catch him with a knee in the clinch, jump on him, and get a TKO. So my pick is, again... I'm siding with the underdog in Roman Delidze at plus 165, plus 170 on some lines to get the victory via KO in the first round. First round KO victory for the underdog in Roman Delidze to improve to 12 victories and one defeat. That's my pick for this fight. I just really, really like Delidze here. When it comes to betting, I think Delidze on the money line is a good look. And I also think fight doesn't go the distance, which is lined at. I'll pull it up very quickly. Hold on. We'll go over to DraftKings and pull it up. Delidze's plus 160 on the money line. Um, fight doesn't go the distance is currently lined at. Let's just see round props. Do we have fight doesn't go the distance? Uh, under two and a half rounds is plus 115. At that point, you probably just want to play her uh, Delidze on the money line at plus 160. I think that's a better bet than betting that under 2.5. Uh, fight doesn't go to decision. Where is it at? Does it not, is it not showed on here? Uh, is minus 110. I like the minus 110 for fight doesn't go the distance, and I like Delidze on the money line. If you want to get juicy, I like Delidze by KOTKO, which is priced at plus 380. Now, am I going to recommend that be your best bet? No, I think Delidze on the money line is the best bet. But if I'm going to rank the best bets on this fight in particular, Delidze on the money line at plus one. 60, right? Plus 170. Am I wrong? Yeah, plus 160. Then I would follow it up with fight doesn't go the distance, which is lined at minus 110. And then I would do Delidze by KOTKO, which is a big juicy number at plus 380. All right. And the next fight up on the card is in the UFC's heavyweight division. You've got a battle between top five ranked contenders in the number four ranked tie, Bam Bam Tuivasa who comes into this fight with a record of 15 victories and four defeats, going up against a guy who's kind of burst onto the scene more recently in the heavyweight division, but really made a name for himself, especially with his last victory, which was a knockout in the first round over Derek the Black Beast Lewis in Lewis's hometown, in the number five-ranked Sergei Pavlovich, who comes back with a phenomenal record of 16 victories and one defeat. Pavlovich versus Tuivasa is a very interesting fight, and the thing is, Tuivasa is very fast, even though his build would never recommend that he's fast at all. He's more chubby. He has more fat on him, but he's definitely gotten better shape over his last couple fights. And even during, you know, leading up through this fight week, you go and look on his social media. He's really, really slimming down. He's still got a little bit of a belly, but compared to how he used to look, man, he's taking it serious and he's really getting in shape. If he fully lost that fat and built some more muscle, he might be able to make 205. Like I'm not hundred percent. But he could maybe be a light heavyweight. But you look at Tuivasa, 
it actually says he's 14 and four um, on sure dog. So maybe the records are wrong, but we'll go with 14 and four. 13 out of his 14 wins come by way of KOTKO. I mean, this guy's called Bam Bam, and he's called that for a reason. He connects on your chin. He can put anybody out. When it comes to his losses, four losses in total, two by KOTKO, one by submission, and one by decision. I mean, he's kind of all over the board, but, you know, he's not the easiest to knock out. He's been wobbled, and in fights where he's been wobbled, he's come back and hurt the opponent and finished them. He's coming off that loss to Cyril Gan via KO in the third round at 4 minutes and 23 seconds. That was in September of 2022, September 3rd. So now we're in December. So October, November, December. I mean, it's it's exactly three months since his fight against Cyril Gunn. And that was a war. He took a lot of damage. He dished out some damage as well, was able to drop Cyril Gunn at one point. You know, hurt him again later in the fight. But he took a lot of damage. You know, Tui Vasa took a lot of shots to the head. Shots to the body got wobbled by a head kick. At one point got... Faked he was wobbled and then stepped into southpaw and landed the overhand left and then was able to slip and roll out of the way. He's got deceptively good head movement. But coming back after that war, you know, three months to the day, that's a big red flag going into this fight against a guy in Pavlovich who's 16-1 and as a pro, who's very technical and long and rangy with the way that he approaches fighting. But when he smells blood, he'll pour it on and he'll go for the finish as well. 16 and 1, 13 out of those 16 victories by KO, TKO, and 3 by decision. He's only lost once. It was a knockout loss to Alistair Overeem back in November of 2018 at UFC Fight Night 141. He lost in the first round. You know, if Alistair Overeem can knock you out, Tui Vasa can as well. Bam Bam's always going to be live for a knockout. He's also very technical. I think the best approach for him in this fight would be to attack the low kicks. Tuivasa has some of the strongest low kicks in this heavyweight division. He's deceptively quick. He's got the fast, you know, the speed. He's got the power behind it. Good movement, but, you know, he can be hit. I think attacking it low against Pavlovich and then working his way up to the head is the best approach. He's going to have to play it safe. And then when he smells blood, he's going to have to go for the kill. He played it safe in certain points, especially against Gon. And we saw that his fight IQ is pretty high. People might discredit the fight IQ of Tuivasa, but he's got fight IQ and he knows when to attack. He knows how to move his head. He knows how to change stances and go with a shot over the top. You know, and I think against Pavlovich, if he plays that technical game, he's not going to win. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. If he plays it technical and tries to point fight, Pavlovich is going to beat his ass. I'm going to be completely honest here. But Tuivasa is always live for a knockout. I mean, almost every single one of his wins are by way of KOTKO. Got rocked by Greg Hardy, came back, hurt him, knocked him out. Got hurt by Derek Lewis, came back, knocked him out. You can hurt him and he'll still come back and find a way to win. Got hurt against Cyril Gan, came back, dropped him in the next round. You know, but then, you know, eventually he did get finished by Gan. But all that damage he took against Cyril Gan only three months ago, that's a big problem against Pavlovich because Pavlovich has a good jab, a good right hand, switches southpaw, good straight left. He squares up his hips when he throws his, his combinations if he smells blood in the water, and he can throw a very good straight left from southpaw, square up his hips for equal power in all of his shots. But if he hurts you, he smells blood, he's going to jump on you, and he's going to put you out. And that's the thing. Three months is not long enough for Tuivasa after that fight. He's taken a lot of damage in some of his other fights. He is getting better defensively, but... You know, overall, this is a bad move for Tuivasa, in my opinion. If you look at the striking uh, overall, he takes 4.24 strikes absorbed per minute for Tuivasa, 4.44 for Pavlovich. I mean, they're both there to be hit, but 
Tuivas is definitely coming in off way too much damage against Gon. The defense overall identical, 45% for both guys, but strikes landed per minute, 4.12 for Tuivasa, which is basically four strikes landed per minute to 6.83, almost seven strikes landed per minute for Pavlovich. That's a th almost a three strike per minute advantage landed for Pavlovich. And based off all the damage that Tuivasa took in his last fight, I think Pavlovich is going to hurt Tuivasa coming in, jump on him. I think Tuivasa will be able to survive for a little bit, but I think he's going to get the KO in the first round. Um, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to go with another first-round KO. He knocked out Derek Lewis in the first round. Tuivasa can get KOs in the first, the second. You know, if he lands on his chin, he can hurt him. And I think Tuivasa is definitely live for a knockout. If you're going to bet the side of Tuivasa, you play him to win by KO, TKO. I mean, on the money line, he's a plus 185 dog, which I think is a little bit interesting, but I can see why he's a dog. I think this should be lined at a little bit closer. I mean, a two-to-one favor for Pavlovich. I understand why. I mean, coming off that knockout over Derek Lewis, but I think this should be lined at like a minus 170 for Pavlovich to like a plus 140, plus 145 for Tai Ivasa. If you're going to bet Ivasa, you always bet him by KO, TKO. You look at the line for the fight. I'll pull it up real quick. You look at the winning method for um, Tuivasa and Pavlovich. We'll pull it up. Can we go winning method? Here we go. Tuivasa to win by KOTKOs plus 215. I mean, at that point, you could just play the money line because he is at plus 185. But I like the knockout side if you're going to play Tuivasa. You know, plus 215 isn't a bad way to play it. Um, Pavlovich to win by KOTKOs minus 135. At that point, you could take the shot. But I think the best play for the fight is going to be the under. Where is it? Where is it? Can we do round props? Do we have the unders somewhere? I don't see it. Let me see if it's under fight lines maybe. Uh, under 1.5 is minus 230. Um, it was a lot lower earlier in the week. I like the under one and a half. I think that's good. That's a very solid line. Um, but minus 230, you're kind of asking for it in terms of playing it overall. So best bet would be money line for Pavlovich and Tuivasa. Um, second best option, if you're playing the side of Tuivasa, would be Tuivasa by KOTKO at plus 215. The third best option would probably be the under 1.5, which is, like we said, minus 230. And at that point, if you're looking for anything else, I don't think it's worth it. So uh, money line, then Tuivasa by KOTKO, then um, under 1.5 at minus 230. But I think money line attacks for this fight overall is probably the best. You could say, yeah, fight doesn't go the distance, but... I, I just, like, it's lined right now at minus 750. That fight doesn't go the distance. I mean, I just don't see it going the full three rounds. And at minus 750, don't touch it with a 10-foot pull. But my overall pick, I think the fact that Tuivas is coming in here after that war, only been three months since all that damage, I think Tuivas is going to get exposed. I think Pavlovich is going to land a big shot. We've seen he's got knockout power. He's got one hitter quitter power. He can drop you with one shot. I mean, that was against Shamil Abdurahimov, but, you know, he's not the best. But again, like, he's got the power to drop him. I think he catches Tuivasa coming in, lands a straight right hand, hurts Tuivasa, jumps on him, and gets a TKO. I think that Tuivasa will 
Nah, I think it ends in the first round. I keep saying like maybe it goes to the second, but if it goes to the second, it'll be earlier early enough where I don't think it'll make it past that two minute thirty second mark in the second round. Um, I think it's early second round if it makes it that far, but I'm gonna go with a first round TKO for Sergey Pavlovich to improve to seventeen and one. I like Amir. I think the layoff isn't long enough for Tuivasa, and I think we're gonna see that. And I think the damage he took against Gon is gonna show its head here. If you want to play Tuivasa, like we said. Playing by knockout every single damn time. But my pick is Sergey Pavlovich to defeat Ty Bam Bam Tuivasa via first round TKO. All right. Up next is going to be a battle in the UFC's flyweight division between top seven ranked contenders and the number six ranked Mateus Nicolau and the number seven ranked Matt Danger Schnell. Look, great matchmaking here. And like I said, a really solid fight night card. One of the best fight night cards we've gotten all year, but it might be flying under the radar if you're not a hardcore MMA fan. Mateus Nikolaou versus Matt Schnell. I mean, Matt Schnell always seems to come up as an underdog and he's pretty much an underdog in all of his fights. I feel like I don't remember the last time Matt Schnell was a favorite. You know, he came up big in his last fight against Sumu Darji after getting Rocked and hurt in that second round so many times. I mean, elbows off the break, framing off into southpaw, left elbow, you know, elbows over the top, uppercuts, straight shots down the middle. I mean, just getting caught over and over and over again. Dropped like three, four, five times. Comes back when Sumo Darji throws the kitchen sink at him. Finds a way to step into range, you know, land on the feet, push him back, get him tired, get the takedown, land in the top position. You know, Sumo Darji reversed it. Matt Schnell reversed again, got in the top position in full mount, landed bombs, cut him open with elbows. He was beating his ass. He finds a way to lock up a triangle choke from the top, roll over, cut the angle to get to the get that side angle, pull down on the head, has the perfect triangle setup, and Mudarji goes to sleep in the second round. I mean, really, really solid comeback win. One of the best comeback wins in MMA history and one of the best comebacks of the year on the side of Matt Danger Schnell. You know, but Mateus Nicolau is not a guy to mess with. He's got a record of 18 victories, two defeats, and one no contest. On the side of Matt Schnell, he's 16 victories and six losses. Three losses by way of KOTKO, two by submission, and one by decision. Five out of his six losses come by way of finish. Out of his 16 victories, he's got nine via submission, two by KOTKO. Most of his wins come by way of finish as well, with 11 out of 16 by way of finish, and then four via decision. Uh, we talked about his last fight with Sumu Darji. Second round, triangle choke, but he passed out, went to sleep. After surviving all that damage in that second round early, you know, four minutes and 24 seconds of the second round, he finishes him. Before that, he fought Brandon Royval. He dropped Royval, hurt him. He's got good straight punches. He's got fast hands. Matt Schnell has quick hands, but he always keeps his chin up in the air. You know, he's there to be hit on counters. His head movement isn't the best. He's good at moving his head before the shots come, but once the shots are coming at his head, he doesn't move out of the way effectively. It's good head movement for show, and it helps him set up his own shots. You know, he'll fake with the rear hand, step forward, put his head forward, slip left, roll underneath, feint the right hand, move his head forward, slip, slip, roll underneath. But once the shots come, he's kind of there to be hit, and we've talked about that on the podcast before. Um, I think against a guy in Nicolau, you know, like we said, against Royval, dropped him, hurt him, almost submitted him with a guillotine. Royval rolled out. Then he jumped on his own guillotine and got the finish in the first round via submission. You know, he throws himself into the fire, does Matt Schnell. Like, he's, he throws himself into the fire. Against Mateus Nicolau, you're going to get burned. 
And look, Nicolau, 18 victories, two losses, one draw. You know, four of his wins come by way of KOTKO, five by way of submission, and nine via decision. So nine by way of finish and nine by way of decision. He can go the distance. He can finish you off. He's a very well-rounded guy. Out of his two losses, they both come by way of KOTKO. Can Matt Schnell pop him and catch him on the chin? Yes. Does he have power to drop him? Yes. But do I think that Nikolau is going to be there? No. I think Nikolau is one of the most technical flyweights and one of the most well-rounded guys in the 125-pound division, and I've said it for a long time. Nikolau is very good at dictating the range, landing the jab, landing the left hook, landing the left shot to the body. His best shot is definitely going to be that left hook to the body. And against Matt Schnell, that's going to be there. He's going to land that left hook to the body. He's going to be looking to get the outside foot against Schnell, who's a southpaw. He's going to be looking to get the outside foot, land the left hook, one, two, rip the shot to the body. Schnell switches his stances a lot. Like he's not always in the same stance. You know, he can mix it up. He can switch his stance pretty well. But, you know, overall here, let me see real quick. In this fight, Schnell's orthodox against Sumudarji, but he does switch. Um, if we're going off the same stance, okay, let's say they're both orthodox. I could have been wrong on my analysis there. So both orthodox guys. I mean, the, the low kicks can be a weapon for Mateus Nicolau. He mixes up the punches, mix up the kicks, but I think the boxing of Nicolau and his hand speed, his technical ability, the way he uses the fakes and feints to draw out his opponent's shots and then comes back with counters. I think Nicolau is a big, big puzzle for Matt Schnell to solve. And you know, the, the betting line agrees with me. I mean, you go and you look on DraftKings, the overall betting, you know, money line for this fight is ridiculous. You've got Mateus Nicolau is a minus 365 favorite, over three and a half to one to plus 300 on the side of Matt Schnell. Now, Schnell's come up big as a dog. He came up big as a good dog against Sumundarji. But I think Mateus Nicolau is a little bit too big for the dog to come up here. And if he steps into Nicolau's yard, he's going to get pissed on and pistol whipped. And that's kind of what I see here. The technical ability on the feet of Nicolau, his ability to dictate the range, to pull his opponents into shots and throw vicious counters against a guy who doesn't have the best head movement when shots are coming at him, but it looks pretty before the shots are actually being thrown. That's a recipe for disaster. And we've seen Schnell get hurt multiple times. You know, We've seen him hurt his opponents as well. The speed could be a problem. The speed of Matt Schnell when it comes to the striking could be a problem. He's got quick hands. You know, he hurt Pantoja and then came up and lost to Pantoja. He hurt Brandon Royval. You know, he hurt Sumu Darji after getting hurt multiple times. He's got speed. He's got power. You know, but I think Nikolaou is just too good technically. He's too good defensively. I don't think he's going to be there for the shots of uh, Matt Schnell. His head is always on the center line. I feel like Schnell is going to be... There for the picking with the counter shots, especially the left hook over the top against Schnell. It's going to be there. The left hook to the body is going to be there. I think he's going to piece up Matt Schnell on the feet. And I think we're going to get a finish from Mateus Nicolau in this fight. I know a lot of the times he's not, you know, the most effective when it comes to finishing. Same amount of victories by way of finish as via decision. But I think in this fight, Schnell is killer be killed, and he's always been killer be killed. And I think in this one, he gets killed. I think where uh, Mateus Nicolau will beat Matt Schnell via a second round submission. I know Schnell is more known as the jujitsu guy, but I think Nicolau is going to hurt him on the feet. I could see a TKO on the side of Mateus Nicolau, but I just think he's so above Matt Schnell in terms of technical ability. He's more intelligent. His fight IQ is a lot higher. I think he hurts Matt Schnell. Schnell dives on the legs. Gives up his back, and I think Nicolau jumps on him and gets the rear naked choke submission. So my pick is going to be Mateus Nicolau to defeat Matt Danger Schnell 
via second round rear naked choke. Now, if you want to play the money line, you can go ahead. It's minus 365. I don't like it. The under two and a half is the play for this fight all day at minus 105. I know you're still not getting plus money, but compared to almost a four to one favor for Nikolau, and you also get the chance that maybe Schnell can pull off the upset. Like I said, it's kill or be killed for Matt Schnell. And in this one, he gets killed. Under two and a half at minus 105 is going to be your best play. You want to follow that up, you go ahead and you look at the winning method for Nicolau. If you want to be juicy, Nicolau to win by submission is plus 300. I think it's definitely a possibility. You want to think Nicolau wins by KO, TKO, it's at plus 250. There are ways to play double chance. For Mateus Nicolau to win by KO, TKO, or submission, you get plus 120. That might be your best play, and I actually think I'm going to side with that as your best play. So the number one play for this fight is the double chance method of victory on DraftKings. Nicolau to win by KO, TKO, DQ, or submission is at plus 120. I don't think this fight goes the distance and you're getting plus money. Next, it's going to be the under two and a half. And that is lined at minus 105. And then if you don't want to play that, you can look at fight doesn't go the distance, which is lined at minus 125. Those are your best plays. But my overall pick, Mateus Nicolau is too good technically. He's too good defensively. And he's too smart for a guy in Matt Danger Schnell who throws himself into the danger zone every time. And it's going to cost him here. He came up big as an underdog against Sumo Darji. It ain't happening against Nicolau. So Mateus Nicolau to defeat Matt Danger Schnell via second round submission with a rear naked choke. And now we get to the co-main event of the evening in the UFC's welterweight division. It's going to be a battle between Brian Bam Bam Barbarina going up against the former welterweight title challenger and former lightweight champion, ranked number seven in the lightweight division, Rafael Dos Anjos. Barbarina versus Dos Anjos. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't necessarily think that Dos Anjos deserved like this big of a step down in competition. But I also think this is such a risky fight for Dos Anjos, especially at 170, that I don't necessarily see an upside here for RDA. Like, And you look at the money line. I mean, he's a minus 560 favorite over Brian Barbarina. Barbarina's plus 430, minus 560 for RDA. Over a 5.5 to 1 favorite. I understand why. But I think that's too high, man. Like, I, I think he started as like a minus 400 or minus 330. I think I got RDA early in like a multi-fight night parlay at like minus 330, somewhere around there. And it's it's almost doubled with him at a minus 560. If you're going to play RDA, I mean, I guess you could throw him in a parlay at minus 560. But, I mean, betting on this fight overall, if you're going to bet, just bet on the underdog. But let's get into the analysis before... You know, I give away too much. I mean, you look at the the level of competition that goes to RDA all day. Common opponents: Brian Barberina and RDA both fought Robbie Lawler. Robbie Lawler lost to RDA via dominant five round decision. Brian Barberina knocked out uh, Robbie Lawler in the second round of their fight, which was the most recent fight for Robbie Lawler at UFC 276, I believe. Brian Barberina is tough. He's got good volume striking. He's got a lot of volume. I mean, in the first round alone, he threw like 180 strikes against Robbie Lawler. That's crazy. RDA has high volume as well, but the volume advantage is definitely going to go to Brian Barberina. 18 and 8 overall as a professional MMA fighter. RDA comes back with a record of 31 victories and 14 defeats. I mean, you've got 26 fights on the side of Barberina to 45 fights on the side of RDA. I mean, he basically doubles up Barbarina. 
you look at win percentages for both guys. 61% of the wins come by way of KOTKO for Barbarina, 11% by submission, and 28% via decision. I mean, he's looking to knock you out, and he's a big finisher. 72% finishing rate in his victories. For RDA, he's got a 16% KOTKO rate, 32% submission rate, and a 52% decision rate. Most of his wins come by way of decision, but he definitely can knock you out or submit you. He's a very well-rounded individual. You saw that showcased in the fight against Hanato Moicano. I know he just lost to Rafael Faziv, but it was a pretty competitive fight. I definitely think that Faziv was on his way to winning a decision, but RDA wasn't getting completely outclassed, and you know, Fiziev could be or Fiziev could be a future champion in the division, 100%. And, you know, I think well-rounded overall mixed martial arts game definitely goes to RDA. I don't really think you can say anything different about this fight. Like, RDA is the more well-rounded guy. He's the more technical guy. The bigger volume is going to come from the side of Brian Barbarina. I mean, you look at the significant strikes landed per minute, 6.11 for Barbarina to 3.58 for RDA. Significant strike percentages, he's landed 6.11 strikes per minute, coming up at almost a 50% accuracy on the significant strikes with a 48% significant strike accuracy rate, which is actually higher than the former champion in RDA, which sits at a 46% significant strike accuracy. Strikes absorbed per minute, Barbarina takes a lot of shots, 5.01. He almost takes as many shots as he lands. Like he's going to be there to be hit, and RDA is going to be there on the counter. 3.23 strikes absorbed per minute for RDA. So basically, he takes almost two less strikes per minute than Brian Barbarina. He's the better defensive fighter. You look at overall defense, 44% striking defense for Barbarina to 61% defense for RDA. He's the more technical guy. He's the sharper fighter. He's the overall more well-rounded mixed martial artist. But when it comes to these veterans, man, there's always that point where they fall off. Was the knockout loss to Fazeev? the point where RDA fell off the tracks. He went and he defeated Hanato Moicano at UFC 272. Looked great. I mean, you look at Moicano's last fight against Brad Riddell. Moicano looked phenomenal. So that's a big win for RDA. I know Moicano stepped up on short notice. Moicano hurt him late in the fight, but it was a dominant wrestling and striking clinic from RDA over those five rounds. Even though it was short notice for Moicano, you got to give Moicano credit as well. You know, he lost to RD or he lost to Fazeev, got knocked out. Is that knockout loss to Fazeev really going to set the tracks in motion for RDA to get finished in this fight? Brian Barbarina has power. We saw it showcased against Robbie Lawler, but Robbie Lawler at this point, you know, is that really the best guy to showcase your power against? Robbie Lawler hasn't been finished too much, but he's also been hit a lot. He's taken a lot of damage and did the damage just catch up to him. That doesn't take away from Barbarina. It was the biggest win of his career. Um, like I said, RDA fought Robbie Lawler. He beat him by decision, outclassed him, outpointed him, beat his ass. You know, Robbie had some decent fights at that point. And going into that fight, Robbie was not the same guy going into the fight against Barbarina. It was a different time. Robbie had just lost the title. He only, I think, had one loss after that. And then he fought RDA. I could be wrong. Maybe it was two losses after the title loss. But I think he beat Cowboy Cerrone. And then he lost to... Um, Colby and then RDA fought him and beat Robbie and then that set up Colby versus RDA I could be wrong you know mixing up the timelines and if I am then actually we could just check it right now let's see so he let's see da, 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 da. pull it back RDA we'll check it right now 
So he beat Robbie Lawler in December of 2017. So that was before Colby fought Robbie. He then lost to Colby. So that win over Robbie got him a title shot because in the welterweight division, he went 3-0 with a decision over Safadine, a submission over Neil Magny, and then the decision win over Lawler. He then lost the decision to Colby, lost the decision to Kamaru Usman, came back and beat Kevin Lee via submission at welterweight, lost to Leon Edwards via decision, lost to Chiesa, Michael Chiesa via decision, beat Paul Felder via split decision, then beat Moicano via unanimous decision, and then just lost to Rafael Faziv at 18 seconds of the fifth round. But that win over Moicano, the win over Felder, you know, RDA's fought the better competition. You don't even have to compare it. I mean, Faziv, Moicano, Felder, Kiesa, Edwards, Kevin Lee, Kamaro Usman, Colby Covington, Robbie Lawler, Tony Ferguson, Habib Nurmagomedov, Eddie Alvarez, Donald Cerrone, Anthony Pettis, Nate Diaz, Benson Henderson. I mean, you name it, RDA's probably, RDA probably has the best resume in mixed martial arts history. Whether wins or losses, you know, 31 and 14, okay, not the best records, but he's fought literally everybody in two different divisions. So, you know, what are you really going to say about RDA except the guy's a gamer, the guy's fought everybody, and he's just too much for Brian Barberina. Now, like I said, there's always that point where they, the veterans fall off the tracks, and could that loss to Fazeev have set that train in motion to where RDA is going to fall off and the volume is going to be too much from Barbarina and Barbarina is going to get a finish. I definitely think it's possible. I think if you overlook Barbarina 100%, I think that's crazy. I think the minus 560 price tag on RDA on the money line is ridiculous. I don't like it. I think RDA should be at the highest, a minus 320. I think that's the highest you can put him. I know Barbarina is a favorable matchup. I know RDA is going to be able to take him down, use his wrestling, outgrapple Brian Barbarina, who doesn't have a good takedown defense. I think it was sitting at 44% takedown defense, which we talked about earlier. I mean, RDA is going to use his wrestling. He's going to take him down. He's going to be the better striker on the feet. He could potentially submit Brian Barbarina. 100%, I think it's possible. But if there's any underdog you want to play on this card, and it's not reflecting my pick, but I would be remiss to tell you not to do it would be to take Brian Barbarina at like a plus 420 or plus 380, somewhere around there. What is he at? Let's see. Brian Barbarina on the money line is currently a plus 430 underdog. Why not take the shot on Barbarina? He could out-volume RDA. RDA has good volume as well. But, I mean, 157 strikes thrown in the first round against Robbie Lawler. It was probably closer to like 170, 180. I mean, that volume is going to be a problem for RDA. We've seen RDA have problems with volume strikers. We've seen RDA inflict volume on his opponents as well. But I think we're going to see a heavy grappling game plan from RDA. I think he's going to take down Barbarina. I think he's going to batter him on the floor. And I think he's going to get a submission victory. I think a finish is definitely possible for RDA. Um, is it the best play? Probably not. The best play for the fight overall is Barbarina as an underdog. But I'm not going to recommend that you do that. But it's the best value play. The best value play because I think he's being heavily overlooked against a guy in RDA who, like we said, just got finished, has taken a lot of damage in his career, etc., etc. Brian Barbarina takes a lot of damage as well, but could this just be the time for Brian Barbarina against a guy in RDA who's coming off that knockout over Fazeev? Or knockout loss to Fazeev, I should say, not over Fazeev. Look, my pick is going to be RDA by submission. Um, I like RDA to win by submission. If you look at the winning method for RDA by sub, 
you're looking at plus 300. That's juicy. That's juicy, baby. And we like it. We like it by submission at plus 300. But <laughs> I think the best play for the fight is Barbarina. The next best play for the fight is going to be uh, fight doesn't go the distance at plus 130. After that, you look at the round props. Uh, under 2.5 is plus 155. So here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to give you three of the best bets. The best bet in terms of value is Barbarina as an underdog at plus 430. The next best bet is RDA to win by submission at plus 300. And the third best bet is the under two and a half rounds, which is at plus 155. I think we do see a finish in this fight either way, but I am siding with the former champion at lightweight and the former welterweight title contender in Rafael Dos Anjos to win this fight via submission. He's better technically. His defense is better. The volume of Barbarina can drown Dos Anjos. We've seen him have trouble with the volume in the past, but I got to go with the technical ability, the overall MMA game, the better defense of Rafael Dos Anjos. So my pick is going to be Rafael Dos Anjos to defeat Brian Barbarina via a second round arm triangle choke submission, the same submission he caught Neil Magny with, the same submission he caught Kevin Lee with. I think he catches him in an arm triangle from the top mount after landing some ground and pound and submits him. So Rafael Dos Anjos to submit Brian Barbarina in the second round via a arm triangle choke. All right, and now we get to the main event of the evening again in the UFC's welterweight division. And it's going to be a battle between the number six ranked former welterweight title challenger and veteran of mixed martial arts and the karate-based Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, who comes into the fight with a record of 16 victories, six defeats, and one no contest, going up against Kevin Trailblazer Holland, who is not ranked at 170 pounds, but is coming off that short notice loss to Hamzat Chemaev with a record of 23 victories and eight defeats. First of all, let's talk about the money line. Holland minus 170 favorite, Wonderboy plus 145 dog. Look, I think that fight is lined pretty correctly. I wouldn't line it any different. Maybe a little bit less of a favorite for Kevin Holland, maybe like minus 150. But for the most part, the money line pick is pretty good. Like minus 170 for Holland, plus 145. I think Wonderboy should be an underdog. But again, we talked about this earlier at the start of the podcast. This is a favorable matchup for Wonderboy and Kevin Holland. This is going to be the type of fight that both men want. Both men want to stand on the feet. Both men want to strike. Wonderboy's wheelhouse is light on the feet, you know, in and out movement. Landing the body kicks, landing the round kicks, landing the wheel kicks. Always stepping in with that you know, switch stance cross to step into southpaw and follow it up with a left body kick, a hook kick, a side kick. His kicks are the best from southpaw, and he uses the right hand to dart in and switch stances off on an angle. He's very good at angling off. Like I said, traditional karate, taekwondo, in and out, light on the feet, throwing those long straight punches to switch stance and use his power kicking game from southpaw and the punching and combinations more from the orthodox side. Kevin Holland, Mixes up his combinations, but potentially, or not potentially, most of the time he fights out of orthodox. You know, both guys fight out of orthodox. I expect Holland to look to attack the body when Wonderboy switches to southpaw. I think the body kicks, I think attacking the back leg with his right round kick when Wonderboy switches to southpaw is a big weapon. Not the front leg, but the back leg. We saw Anthony Pettis do that when he would eventually go to knock out Anthony or uh, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Huge upset. Kind of crazy to go back and think about it that 
you know, Anthony Pettis knocked out Wonderboy back in the day, but he used that back leg round kick. And I think that Kevin Holland is going to use that same weapon, especially when Wonderboy switches to southpaw. And then when he does that, he'll go to the body. After that, he'll look to set up his long rangy combinations on the feet. This is a fight where it is a pick and it should could potentially be lined as a pick and I wouldn't be mad. Both guys are coming off losses. Um, Wonderboy coming off the decision loss to Bilal Muhammad. That submission loss to Hamza Chemaev for Kevin Holland on short notice. Look at the height. 6'3 for Kevin Holland to 6 feet for Wonderboy. When you look at the reach, 75-inch reach for Wonderboy to an 81-inch reach for Holland. A 6-inch reach advantage for Holland, and I think that's going to play a big factor in this fight. 100%. I think the distance striking, the straight punches like we saw him use against Joaquin Buckley. Like we saw him catch... Um, why can I not think of his name? Like we saw him catch Tim Means with. Oh my God, I couldn't think of that. I could picture him in my head, but he caught Tim Means with the long straight punches. Dropped Joaquin Buckley with the long straight shots. He's very good keeping that distance and using long rangy techniques. Very good sidekick, lead leg sidekick, uh, rear leg front kick to the body. He uses sidekicks and has a traditional martial arts style of in and out movement on the feet like a wonder boy, but he's not going to want to play that in and out striking game against a guy who's made a career in kickboxing was 57 and 0 in kickboxing in Steven Wonderboy Thompson. You play that light in and out karate style against Wonderboy. I don't care who you are. You're going to lose. Maybe the reach advantage Holland could catch him, but I don't think we're going to see as much of a karate based style from Holland. I think it's going to be more boxing based and looking to tie up Wonderboy in the clinch. We've seen Wonderboy have issues with grapplers. We've seen Holland have issues with grapplers as well, but the one blueprint to both these guys is to use the grappling. But if anybody in this fight is going to use the grappling to their advantage, I would think that it's going to be Holland tying up Wonderboy against the cage, getting the takedowns inside and outside trips and looking to control Steven Thompson from the top position. I don't necessarily think we will see takedowns, but like I said, if takedowns are going to arise in this fight, it's going to be on the side of Kevin Holland, who's the moderate favorite in this one. I think that this is really a case of, you know, what have you done for me lately? And is Wonderboy past his prime? Because you look at Steven Thompson, I mean, 16, 6, and 1, not a terrible record. You know, eight wins by way of finish, eight by decision, you know, 50 50. And then his losses, five via decision, only one knockout loss. He's never been knocked out, you know, besides the, the knockout over Anthony Pettis. He doesn't get knocked out. But he's coming off two back-to-back -back losses, a unanimous decision loss to Gilbert Burns, who was able to out-grapple him, out-wrestle him, and take him down. He did hurt Burns on the feet at one point, but it didn't work. Bilal Muhammad took down, taken down and out-wrestled. So two losses to Burns and Muhammad. And then those wins over Vicente Luque and Jeff Neal. Those are high-level wins. Those are bigger wins than Kevin Holland has. Holland's biggest win would more than likely be that knockout over Jacare Souza. But at 170, his biggest win is going to be the win over Alex Cowboy Oliveira. Then the win over Tim Means. He lost to Hamza Chemaev, but no shame in that. He took it on short notice. He was able to outscramble him at one point. But, you know, Chemaev just followed it through and got the submission victory. Prior to that, he got knocked out to Anthony Pettis, lost the decision to Darren Till. A lot of people thought that maybe Wonderboy did enough to win that fight. He got a unanimous decision and looked great against Jorge Masvidal. And then we go back to the Woodley fights, which was a draw and then a loss via decision. I thought Wonderboy won both of those fights against Woodley. Um, I think those were kind of robberies, especially the second fight. Rory McDonald, he beat him via decision, knocked out Johnny Hendricks, knocked out Jake Ellenberger with a wheel kick. Unanimous decision win over Patrick Cote. 
knocked out Robert Whitaker at 170 pounds, which not a lot of people remember, but he did knock out Whitaker in the first round via TKO at 170, um, a TK over Chris Clements, and then uh, Nashan Burrell, he won via decision. That was back in May of 2013 when he knocked out Whitaker. That was February 2014, so over six or over eight years since that one, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. But going into this fight, it is a favorable matchup for Wonderboy, and if, you know, Holland plays that light in, you know, light on the feet in and out karate style. I think Wonderboy can definitely win this fight, could catch Kevin Holland, could knock him out, or could win a decision. But you're going off recency bias. You know, would Kevin Holland beat a Gilbert Burns? I don't know. I don't really think so. Would he beat a Bilal Muhammad? I think it's possible, but I think he gets taken down like Wonderboy did. This is going to be in their wheelhouse. Wonderboy is live as a dog against a striker. He knocked out or beat, you know, Vicente Luque pretty bad. He beat Jeff Neal pretty one-sided and dominantly. Would Kevin Holland beat a Luque? I don't think so. Would he beat a Jeff Neal? I don't necessarily think so. Uh, you know, when it comes to wins, it's more on the side of Wonderboy. He's the veteran. He's got the better wins against strikers. This is going to be a striking matchup. But at this point, I think this is the point where Wonderboy just falls off the tracks. I'd love to see Wonderboy get this win. I would love to see it. I'm not betting on this fight at all. I don't think this fight should be bet on by anybody. You can agree with me, disagree with me, whatever you want. I'm not even going to give you a best bet for this fight because I don't think anybody should bet on this because it's that close when it comes to the striking. But at the end of the day, I think the length, the reach, and the long straight punches of Kevin Holland are going to eventually catch Wonderboy on the chin, and I see Holland knocking him out. Like I said, all these veterans, man, there's always that point where they fall off. This, I don't necessarily think it could be. The point, like, I, I I could see Wonderboy lasting a little bit longer, but I think Holland has a lot more power than Wonderboy has in his punches. And I think with the hands-down style of Wonderboy, he is going to be hard to catch, but I think at one point, Holland's going to slow him down with the low kicks, and then he's going to catch Wonderboy stepping in with a long, straight right hand, and he's going to drop him, and he's going to finish him off. I'm going to go with Kevin Trailblazer Holland to get a vic uh, victory via TKO over Wonderboy Thompson. I'm going to go Holland via third round, TKO. I don't think the fight goes the distance on either side. I think if Wonderboy wins, it's going to be by a KO as well. I could see him countering Holland stepping in with the hand the hands low style and popping him with a straight like he did against Luke, like he did against so many other opponents, like he did against Whitaker. I could see him catching him, jumping in and popping him with that, you know, lunging shot and knocking him out. I could see a knockout on either side. If it goes to decision, I think the decision side would be more on the side of Stephen Wonderboy Thompson fighting his style of fight, and Kevin Holland not being able to close the distance effectively. But when it comes to a pick, I'm going to go with Kevin Holland. I think Kevin Holland finds the chin of Wonderboy in the third round and knocks him out. It's long, straight punches. Straight punches beat looping punches. We've heard it before. I think he's going to attack the back leg when Wonderboy's in southpaw. I think he's going to attack the back leg when Wonderboy's in orthodox, and he's going to attack the inside leg at certain points too. That's going to slow down Wonderboy and set up a big shot up top. Wonderboy's not going to be able to move away effectively and get cracked with that right hand, dropped, and finished. So my pick is Kevin Trailblazer Holland to defeat Stephen Wonderboy Thompson via third round TKO. But betting side, don't bet on this fight. It's so close in terms of the stylistic matchup. I think this is the one fight on the card you do not bet on. So I'm not going to give you a pick in terms of betting because I just don't think this is the one to bet on. But my pick is Kevin Holland to knock out Wonderboy Thompson in the third round 
and improve his record at 170 pounds. All right, that's going to be it for this podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed. We're back. We're back in full force, especially with the audio side of the podcast. And you can find this podcast anywhere you get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, any audio podcast platform you can find, you can find the Touch Em Up podcast. This episode will be broken down into individual segments and uploaded to the YouTube channel, which as we touched on earlier, is the same name as the podcast. At Touch Em Up Podcast on YouTube, you can find this with video edits and a little bit easier for you to watch if you don't want to watch the entire breakdown of the card. Please leave a review for the podcast anywhere you can, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help us grow and have people get more exposure to what I believe to be the most technical and best MMA podcast on any platform on the internet. I'm your host, Double M. These have been UFC Orlando Thompson versus Holland. Preview, predictions, and analysis, and I'm out. Enjoy the fights this weekend.